Welcome back to Divorced and Done. It is Tuesday. I'm Rob Woodward here with Darren Schmitz. We are divorce lawyers helping you walk through our divorced and done steps to moving your divorce forward without bankrupting you emotionally or financially. Of course, everything we discuss in this podcast is legal information, but it is not legal advice or legal opinion of any kind. Darren Schmidt, this week of October 5th, how are you doing? Woo! I am so good. Doing a little woo there like Ric Flair. Loving life. How are you doing? I am well. I had a great weekend. We, of course, continue to have the beautiful fall that we've had here in Calgary. I had my family to dinner, and uh, I did something I haven't done in about four years. I made pickle soup. You ever had pickle soup? No, because I'm normal. Uh, it is the Ukrainian, <laughs> the Ukrainian treat. So for Sorry, anyone who's Ukrainian and <laughs> loves pickle soup, uh, background to this, of course, I had never had pickle soup until actually we were articling um, because I articled, I did a political article with the legislature here in Alberta. Not a big deal. Uh, it was a cool experience. But as a result of that, of course, there's a lot of... Um, historically Ukrainian folks in in and around the Edmonton area. So one of the things they served in the legislature and you could get around the legislature in a few different restaurants is pickle soup. And what it is, it's not just pickles. It's a, a thicker, um, it is not cream based, but it has a thicker base to it. It's a potato, sort of cream of potato soup with pickles in it, carrots. It has a milder dill flavor. It is very pleasant. The one piece I will add, if you crumple up the dill chips on top and put it in the pickle soup, that is excellent. That's how they served it around the legislature. So for the fun of our listeners, as we're rolling into Thanksgiving week here, in the show notes, I'm going to post my recipe for pickle soup. I hope someone makes it. When I when you said pickle it's really soup, good. Thought, it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I thought rock soup, but... Uh... No, it's better than that. <laughs> Ah, if you want to hear more about soup, you can not listen to this episode because we're going to address listener questions because that's what we should be doing. You can send your questions to us and we'll address them through the lens of our divorced and done steps. You can send them to lawyers, plural, lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com. You can check out our website, divorced and done, A-N-D, done.com. And uh, we've gotten so many great questions. We're jam-packed with questions, so let's get right into it. Question one. Hi. Hello. Listener says, I'm having a hard time right now deciding if I should put a restraining order on my ex for me and my kids. He's been stalking me and recently bought a knife, and the kids told me they're worried that dad'll hurt me. He's uh, extremely worried about losing custody of our kids because uh, he will, because uh, of the impact this would have on support payments. I would like to put things in a request for a restraining order that my daughter has told me, but if I do, I fear there might be some repercussions for her or he may punish her. I don't want to have her lose her trust in me because she is at least talking to me about what's going on, but I feel he's hurting the children right now. It's been since March uh, since he, it has been since March since he has uh, put his hand on any one of us, her or the children. And she says he's extremely difficult, makes things murky by saying, I am the abusive one. I don't really know what to do, but I am scared for me and the children. 
um, leaves it there. So obviously some difficult circumstances here, Rob, um, but a couple things are going on from this. There seems to be some concern about family violence and the listener is hearing at least part or all of those concerns through her children from what her children are telling her. All that said, what do you think? We did a really comprehensive episode on restraining orders just a couple weeks ago. So thing one, I would say, go back, give that a listen. We talk about all the policy considerations underneath it, why you would want one, what that process looks like. Very briefly, restraining orders are solely for the protection of against family violence and keeping people safe. The goal of those orders is not to give anyone a leg up in an ongoing parenting dispute. Uh, And if that does happen, uh, if people are found out to have gotten restraining orders on grounds that are later proven not to be the case, um, that could impact a future parenting matter. That to be said, we don't want to discourage anyone from getting one. Um, But I would encourage you to listen to that episode where we talk about why you may want one, why you may not want one. In this situation, it sounds like the chief concern is less a potentially legitimate concern from her ex that he may be violent toward her and more what she's hearing from her children. Uh, This situation, it is totally up to the listener whether she feels she needs a restraining order or whether this may be a good example for police intervention uh, or child protective services intervention, depending on what your children are saying. Uh, Additionally, you may also wish to seek children's counsel or some way to bring your children's voices into the process. Restraining orders are really only for those instances where you feel some imminent danger uh, and you need something to protect you in that instance. So I would suggest to the listener, if she has a lawyer, depending on where they are in the process, raising that issue with her lawyer and potentially considering everything she's hearing from her children before necessarily just jumping to a straight restraining order. Darren? That's a really difficult set of circumstances for our listeners, so we empathize. Um, Step one of our divorced and done steps is living separate and apart and and ensuring everyone is safe. And right now you're saying that you don't feel safe. And the reason we're hearing that you're not feeling safe is because of what your children are telling you. And so what I would say in this case is we, we need to be very clear on what your children mean by what they're saying. And so I would encourage before going and getting a protection order or restraining order, like you say, Rob, it's to protect against the instant or imminent risk of likely or probable physical or emotional harm. Um, And they're not granted lightly. uh, And if they are, uh, they by a court um, on an ex parte or without notice basis, for instance, it would likely be for a short duration. And that's going to put you in a position of further litigation, further conflict. And we're never going to dissuade someone from pursuing a protection order remedy, restraining order remedy, something like that, if they truly do need it. If you need it, you need it. But if you don't and you're really considering, well, I'm concerned because what my kids are telling me, there's other ways to deal with that. So those other ways are, like you say, maybe getting children's counsel, getting your children at at minimum in counseling uh, so that they can help process what's going on, respecting the breakdown of their uh, mom and dad's relationship. And um, maybe more importantly, getting a report from an expert appointed through your jurisdiction to determine what in fact are the kids feeling? What are they saying? 
what are they perceiving and what are their wishes moving forward, that might help calm everything down. The restraining order, if you're going to pursue it, it's like I say, it's likely going to result in further conflict and it's going to delay moving through our divorced and done steps. Again, don't take that to mean that we're not encouraging you to get a restraining order or a protection order because that might be necessary in your case. Um, if you're truly wondering about this, what I would say is consult a lawyer in your jurisdiction and go through the facts in depth with them and they should be able to guide you in the right direction. Let's move we on to well. Yes, of course. Let's move on to question two. It's a follow-up question from uh, a dear listener and um, it's a sequence of some questions. So let's get into those. First uh, sub-question is, to what degree is information from a divorce proceeding public? Can it be Googled and will it come up online or would it require going to the courthouse to request copies of documents, etc.? Or are only the parties participating in it aware of what is said and decided? So, uh, Rob, what's your experience with this? This is such a great question because I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. Um, in law and in family decisions, often we don't get reasons from judges, meaning written reasons where they write a decision. We'll just get an order. We will conclude matters. Uh, your divorce paperwork gets filed with the court without going into particulars on all of that. Generally, I know the rule in Alberta is only the parties themselves and lawyers that act for those parties can receive historical documents. That's generally the rule. Uh, and that's probably similar across the country. The interesting wrinkle is when written reasons are produced. That's when a judge says there's something interesting about this case. Uh, so I'm going to write out all my reasons why the applicable law that's what what is the common law or what we call judge-made law decisions that with the advent of the internet in the last 15 years uh, particularly through services like canli c-a-n-l-i-i in canada all of those things are public and there is now an emerging concern because children that were involved in divorce proceedings or family law litigation in the early 2000s, those cases are now going online. They may have been young children. They're now Googling themselves or Googling their friends and they're finding their divorce litigation online. Uh, that's not to say you can find the pleadings or other pieces of information, but if there is a decision where a judge has rendered a decision and said, I'm going to do written reasons, that's online. Thankfully, in recent years, um, and Darren and I, we've talked about this in many jurisdictions, they're now just identifying cases by initials and not by actual names. But in many instances, they do still identify cases by names. If there's not sensitive information about children, for example, child support reviews, often we will see the names. And as a further aside for Darren and I on Divorced and Done, one policy choice that we have made is when we've taught when we're talking about cases, we'll still identify them by number, but we're not going to identify them by name. That way, even though these things are Googleable, they are findable, we're trying to give everyone a little bit of privacy in something that is a public matter. But to come back to the core of the listener's question, except in that situation where written reasons are granted by a judge or are issued by a judge, generally your divorce proceeding is not public. It cannot be searched and it cannot be retrieved except for by the parties or by one of the lawyers acting for the parties. Do you have anything further on that piece, Darren? In, in BC, we're really guarding 
privacy of litigants and family law proceedings, acronym names. In fact, uh, any listener that is familiar with going to court or a docket court about your court matter, your family law matter, you're, you're familiar with, it varies courthouse to courthouse, but typically what happens is there's a printed list of even the names of the parties that are appearing that day in court and a numbered uh, list of those names based on you know when they'll appear on the list. Uh, in BC, we have, at least in Vernon, I'll, I'll, I'll give this example where I practice, or Kelowna, where I often find myself going to court. Uh, family law matters, the names of the parties themselves, it's just omitted. It's just blank, and it's just the, the file number from the Supreme Court of BC or Provincial Court. The civil law matters, so the parties that are fighting about contracts or other things, the non-family law matters, the parties' names are identified on that list. So, you know, even even if someone wanted to take a picture of the court list outside of the docket that day, and you probably shouldn't be using your phone in a courthouse anyway, although not in the courtroom, but um, you you won't even be able to glean any information off that. You're just knowing as a, as a lawyer, family lawyer in my region, I just have to know the court file number to know what matter it is on the list. I can't. I, I won't be able to see it based on the party's names because it's just omitted from the list. All, rep- all reported decisions in British Columbia, and I don't know how long this has been going on, it's just the initials of the party's names and initials of the children. So no one's full names are identified on any reported decisions. And in terms of finding access to information or pulling a court search, like you say, Rob, in my jurisdiction, same thing. Um, if some third party wanted to pull access to those records, I think they'd have a pretty hard time doing so. Uh, it'd have to be a lawyer acting for one of the parties or one of the parties themselves subsequent to the court appearance, pulling whatever it was that occurred, records of pleading, stuff like that. So we're getting better at at monitoring privacy. But I know even in, in Alberta, the names of the parties still are identified um, we still as last that. names. Yeah. Yes, on our so decisions. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if in five years, all provinces and territories in Canada go to the, you know, the... Uh, initials, acronyms of the party's names, and that, that'll that be it, right? I think we'll all move that way ultimately. So it's a decision from province to province. All right, next question is uh, di- divorce. The listener says, so divorce is a civil matter, right? Can issues raised in a civil proceeding, uh, I think she means it's a, it's a civil or family matter. Can, can issues raised in such proceedings result in criminal charges being pursued by the prosecution, crown prosecution, or anyone else later. So information gleaned from a family law proceeding, can it result in a prosecution of that person? Uh, Pretty specific question, but Rob, what do you think? I think my view would be maybe uh, if something really serious, for example, uh, harm against a child, uh, extreme harm against somebody else, potentially that could lead to criminal charges. In my practice, though, however, I will say I have not seen that. Um, So although it's possible, I think the biggest thing generally that we see is really extreme allegations between parents that maybe would have warranted uh, intervention from Child Protective Services previously. A judge in Alberta actually has the ability to independently go, I'm referring this to Child Protective Services. So I've seen that happen. But criminal charges that were not live before um, coming up in a family proceeding, I think it could be possible, but I have not seen it myself. I haven't either. I mean, we often see parties dealing with drug problems and 
sometimes, you know, parties that are unfamiliar with the court system, there'll be a little reluctance to reveal, yeah, you know, I used, you know, whatever substance back, back in the day, or I drove impaired at some point, obviously things that no one's proud of. Um, but they're worried like, oh, well, you know, the, the police be waiting outside the courtroom after our court appearance. Cause I revealed, you know, I, yeah. I bought cocaine at some point. And the answer is no. Yeah. Um, but if, if serious misconduct, uh, assaults, things like that have been, um, revealed as part of the proceedings, your lawyer and the other side's lawyer, likely none of, neither of them will be, uh, revealing anything to the crown prosecution service, but it would be, it'd be on the crown prosecutors or the police in your jurisdiction to do something with that information. So it probably is pretty rare. Uh, final follow-up question from this listener. Uh, if I mention my ex's drug use during our divorce, can he end up with legal problems with me mentioning it, especially if it's an ongoing problem? I have proof that drugs are an issue for it to impact his parenting time. Is there any chance the police will show up and raid the house looking for drugs? So obviously this is a follow-up to the, the last question, or, or could he go to jail, or will this result in a child and family services investigation or cause reputation problems, th- things like that. So obviously the listener is cognizant that by revealing certain information in the family law proceedings that there, there might be some overlap in the criminal world. So just a follow-up to that. Any further thoughts, Rob? There's a big difference between if dad has a drug drug problem and uh, has had that problem for some years and dad is el chapo running yeah. drugs I say pablo escobar. Forth, <laughs> say pick one like i mean if your ex is pablo escobar i hate to say it he's probably not showing up to his family court date he has bigger problems uh not to be cavalier darren is chuckling here in the background and i sort of be in flip saying he has your ex el chapo but um, the family issues, if this is just a personal drug issue, will likely trump those drug issues. Um, generally, new criminal charges, new problems do not emerge. And if there are serious issues of criminality around drugs, around other things, those have probably already come out anyway. And the notion of they've been held under wraps for so long, they're just going to come out in a family proceeding. That's not something we generally see. I would say to um, withhold information in your family law proceeding that you think is um, uh, relevant relevant evidence, Um, you know, don't do that. Reveal whatever information you need to reveal to your lawyer and take advice from them on the use of that information pertaining to your family law matter. Obviously, if it's going to a trial or some contested hearing, all evidence will be on the table. If it's a settlement hearing or something, you're going to a four-way settlement conference, um, you know, maybe not revealing that information because it might scuttle some deal you want to reach. You know, that's all something uh, strategically you're going to have to think of through your lawyer. But I mean, in terms of just revealing information about drug use and drug addictions, number one, it's very sad that your ex is going through this. Um, and that it's having an impact on your family law matter. And, and we don't mean to diminish that in any respect. Um, but um, I, I, from what, what little we know, uh, I don't see um, the police swooping in on, in this instance. But I mean, get, get some advice from a lawyer in your jurisdiction specifically on, on that information. And maybe it is on the spectrum of serious and that that may have an impact on how you want to reveal that information and, and in what context. So she, she just adds at the end of her email, my top priority is keeping my kids safe. And I, but I want to do this in the least disruptive way possible. So we commend you 
uh, on those um, aspirations because they're obviously very important. And hopefully you can move to being divorced and done. Well, you know, just on that piece, I would say we've mentioned this in previous episodes where people are concerned and they're writing into us saying, I'm worried about my ex's drug problem, my ex's substance abuse problem. I don't want to diminish them as a parent or hurt their access to their kids or whatever. That still shows there's some respect there for that person as a parent and that person as an individual. For us, that's more than half the way to getting to the divorced and done steps and avoiding trial and avoiding court intervention. You can still work those steps and reach resolution with that person because you already have that respect for each other as parents. So we wish the listener all the best going forward. And we're also not your lawyers. We're just uh, giving Absolutely. legal information on a on a podcast. So go go speak to a lawyer in your jurisdiction about your specific problems. Let's move on to our third question. Uh, listener says, "Hello, Darren." I'll say, "Hello, Darren and Rob," because yeah, we're I'm all, just we're the vice here. president. Whatever. <laughs> I came across your TikTok videos about family violence on a spouse's infidelity and some sexual, emotional, and mental and financial abuse. I've I've just so everyone knows, I've made some TikToks about this. There's some recent case law out of Ontario on these topics. So I think the listener is is referencing those TikToks. I'll, I'll interject with those at the end of the question. I am currently the higher income earner between me and my spouse. The, the income disparity is currently quite large. Uh, and me, uh, she says, I've been grossly wronged in this instance. I feel like if as part of my separation, I should not be penalized financially in the form of child support or spousal support, which he is threatening to take from me if I leave him now. I feel trapped and I wanna get out from all the abuse and financial neglect from him. I would like to know if I file a case in my local province, Ontario, uh, on grounds of family violence to protect me both financially and from long-term sexual, mental, and emotional abuse. Uh, thank you so much for all that you are doing to educate you. God bless you. That's a very kind note. Uh, the, the listener has added a, a further uh, attachment with some context. We will not go through that. Uh, it's quite lengthy, and we thank, but we do thank her for sending that in. And in further, uh, I guess coming back to the TikTok reference, um, I, I referenced a case on a TikTok video a week or two ago about um, an instance where a court considered basically habitual infidelity committed by the father in that case throughout the course of his relationship with the mother and the impact that that would have on the parenting time component of that case. In other words, what's the most appropriate parenting arrangement for the minor children in that case? And the court did consider the infidelity as as a broader uh, factor as part of considering family violence. So the court said, Yes, in this case, the infidelities committed multiple, uh, numerous infidelities committed as uh, throughout the party's relationship, and and that coupled with the manner in which uh, those infidelities were addressed by the parties through the relationship. In other words, I think that the dad in that case had tried to almost blame mom uh, for him having to commit the infidelities and and sort of passing the blame on her. Just the whole nature of him committing the infidelities and then sort of mentally tormenting mom in that in that case was one thing the court considered, not the only thing, one thing the court considered in the broader array of best interests of the child in making a parenting order, okay? So that was the gist of that TikTok. 
All of that said, um, and the gist of this question is, this listener is on the verge of ending her relationship from her ex. There has been infidelities committed here, I, I, um, and the listener feels like she's been emotionally abused um, and that she's been coaxed into sexual circumstances uh, that uh, she otherwise would not have engaged in. Uh, there's a whole host of things going on here. The, the, the crux of the question is, the relationship's on the verge of ending. Uh, she's scared that if she leaves, she's going to be on the hook for child support and spousal support. And this sort of family violence component is uh, hanging out there as well. So, Rob, all of that said, what are your thoughts? This is a very complex question. Uh, you and I both reviewed it and talked about it. Um, what I took from this, unfortunately... And my narrow reading of this may be incorrect. So I apologize to the listener if I'm incorrect and in sort of drawing some assumptions. She's the higher earning income parent. She seems to suggest by virtue of having to pay child support and spouse support that at the end of her marriage, dad will still be involved with the children in some form. Uh, and if she's suggesting that she will be paying child support, that to me means dad has the children both paired, both parties, excuse me, have the children 40% of the time, which means at least some form of shared parenting. That's where we offset both parties' incomes and their child support obligations to determine what's paid. So in that instance, the higher earning spouse will owe support to the lower earning spouse, unless the higher earning spouse has the children in their care more than 60% of the time, less than 40% of the time for the other parent, then there likely wouldn't be any child support paid by the higher earning parent. It would be paid by the lower earning parent to the higher earning parent, to the parent that has the kids the majority of the time, over 40, or excuse me, over 60%. So by the way that's worded, I read this as her suggesting she sees some sort of shared parenting regime there. She doesn't want to pay child support. Child support is the right of the child. It's not the right of your spouse. And with that, I also have to say our divorce process in Canada is civil, meaning we just want to get people through. It's disputes between parties. It is not criminal. It is not punitive. So if dad has shared parenting or you're both in some situation where you both have the children 40% of the time, child support will be paid. Spousal support may or may not be paid on a whole host of other factors, but that infidelity piece particularly and uh, extreme sexual predilection, I think broadly that the listener points at, that's not really going to be a factor for determining support. Where it can be a factor could go to parenting. And if she wants to be parent of those children full-time and says dad cannot be a parent because of his extreme sexual appetites, if you will, um, sure, then she has the children more than 60% of the time, dad will owe her support. But more than the support question, what kind of parent are you both going to be? What kind of parent can dad be? Throughout that question, she never really speaks to dad's abilities as a parent. It's more just financial and what she experienced in the relationship. And not to trivialize those things. Um, I'm sorry your marriage didn't work out. And clearly she was in a bad situation for a long time. Um, I don't trivialize any of that. Unfortunately, trying to bring those issues into your divorce 
to get a financial leg up without looking at parenting or without considering how dad is as a parent, a court just won't make that finding. I'm almost going to address this at its most simplest through our steps. So it's unclear to me whether the listener is actually separated from her spouse. So step one is, as anyone that's listened to this podcast, if you're new to it, um, the episode on welcome to season two back, I believe in August, we set out very clearly our six steps to being divorced and done. Step one is living separate and apart and ensuring everyone is safe. That's step one. So let's let's get living separate and apart, and then let's figure out step two. So I don't know where we're specifically at at this point, but what I would say is it appears that the relationship is over. It would be incumbent upon you now, the listener, to say in as mature and forward-focused way as possible, telling your spouse the relationship is over giving them solutions for how you can actually live separate and apart, who's going to leave the house, who's going to stay in the house, what those living arrangements are going to look like, but as quickly as possible, live in separate residences so that there's peace of mind and clarity moving forward so that we're not thinking about clearly the traumatic events that have happened through the course of the relationship. Okay. So step one is there. Step two of our steps is the parenting arrangement. So you have minor children or a child. Um, that's where it's an opportunity for you once you're living separate and apart to figure out what are what are those living arrangements going to be for our kids. And if you can come to an agreement on that, wonderful. And that might be equal shared parenting. It might be you think the kids should be with you more of the time, like you say, Rob, because the other parent is uh, not capable of having the children in their care on some sort of shared or roughly equal basis. That's a step two question. Let's get you focused on living separate and apart right now. Let's get you living separate. Let's get you living safe. Let's let you get moving forward in your life because if you're living together and all of these traumatic things have happened, you're not going to be able to move forward. So let's get that started first then next step two is that parenting arrangement. And lots of people spend a lot of time at step two because it's a really important step. Rob and I spend a large portion of our practices with clients at step two. And sometimes that necessitates court appearances right off the top or close to right off the top. And But that's a step two thing. Let's get you living separate and apart. That's the big takeaway I would say from this question. But what I do want to say is I really thank you for sending it in. Um, we have had just more broadly, so many in-depth questions from listeners. And it means the world to Rob and I to basically sit on a phone call with each other and get these questions from people right across North America. Uh, it's an honor to try and help you folks. And we hope we can do the best we can. Again, we're not your lawyers, but we have these steps and we're really trying to help push people through these steps. We don't say push, like we're, we're trying to force you through them but we really think they work. We're really committed to them. So back to this listener's question, step one, live separate and apart. That's the big takeaway from this. And uh, I think with that, I mean, that's only a few questions this week, but they've been really in depth. I think we'll maybe leave it at that for this week, if that's okay, Rob. 
Absolutely. And on that last question, again, I do want to thank the listener for sending in so much material, as so many people have, because this show is not Darren and I alone. This information we want to provide for everybody is making your life better, we hope. And just giving you some of the things that we've learned and seen along the way in moving people to Divorced and Done, hopefully the best way that we can tell you how to do this Um, to be quick, to be efficient, and to move forward again so you can be separate and apart. Find peace and live your best life. So Darren Schmidt, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, everyone, that you all continue to send us questions to lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com, and we look forward to being with you again soon. 